we give full credit to the the, uh, work of Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit uh, to give us the attitude of Christ. I pray, Father, as we study the book of Numbers, and particularly as we go into the uh, the sections of narrative um, that we would both be exhorted and also encouraged um, by these and uh, to walk with you and to submit our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, <clears throat> boy, don't turn me up too much. I had it down kind of low because, okay. Okay, so the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers is really getting the army ready to march into the promised land. So we don't know exactly where Sinai is. Maybe it's down here. Some people think there's something up here. But basically, there's going to be like a a quick march that's going to take place going into the promised land from the south. And uh, that is a... Uh, that it wouldn't be a, a long journey uh, to get there, and you're going to see this this development as they go here. And of course, you know that they send the spies, and then the the ten bring a bad report back, and then they don't go into the promised land, and they basically wander in this area for forty years, thirty nine years. They just wander. <clears throat> so, Numbers is the only book that I know that Deuteronomy does a little bit at the beginning of of Deuteronomy that really gives a narrative account of what occurred during those wandering years. And it's not a full account, but it is a, uh, at least the the highlights of the low points is the way I would describe it. They're they're giving you um, really a lot of the bad stuff that occurs. So the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 11, begins that. And the first three verses, verses one through three, are kind of a, just a summation. I think it's describing an event, but it really is a summation of what occurs throughout the entire book of Numbers. So it's, uh, it's helping us with that. So um, let's go ahead and read just one through three. Uh, we have the microphone ready yet or not? Maybe I should read myself and then we'll... Oh, you've got it. There we go. Well, give it to your dad. Let him read the first three verses. Numbers 11, 1 through 3. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Okay, so again, this is a this is a pattern, a summation, a pattern that we are going to become so fed up with by the time we get to the end of Numbers, we're going to wish it, it wasn't a pattern. Um, so the people complain. Any other different translations that you guys might have to help us with this? Okay, that's all we have, complain, good, fine. Um, The Hebrew word, even though the whole book is really about complaining and grumbling and all this kind of stuff, 
This is the only place where this Hebrew word is used, and that helps us to see that this is such a, a um, kind of a pattern summation text. <clears throat> um, and uh, the, even though there's this Hebrew word, and then there's another Hebrew word, both Hebrew words, when they're translated into the Greek, use the same Greek word. So that helps us to see that they're just, they're nuanced differences, but they're not really differences. They're just two different words helping us to see what's going on. The Greek word is, uh, I don't know if I'm saying this right, <clears throat> gongudzo. And it's, it's the, the kind of has a, the way that the word sounds actually reflects its meaning. It's where we get the word grumbling, you know. And so the word gongudzo actually has that kind of grumbling, murmuring, kind of attitude. Um, so, uh, in the book of Numbers, complaining, murmuring, grumbling, all help us to, to understand that what's coming out of the people is not just a small sin, something small, but it is a reflection of rebellion against God. That's what it is. It's a stubborn refusal to believe God's word. It's a, it's a rebellion against God's provision, it, the goodness of that provision. Uh, it, it, it is a really, uh, it's living according to fear rather than trust. There's a lot of elements, as we'll see as we go through the book of Numbers. But this idea of grumbling is at the very heart of all of Israel's rebellion. Now you think about that, we as Christians, do we struggle with grumbling? You know, do we often think that that's just par for the course in the Christian life? Like we kind of just accept that? That's who we are, grumblers and complainers? Um, Sometimes we look at that as a small sin. Oh, there's other big sins. It's interesting that that the book of Numbers paints this as really the heart of every other sin. Discontentment, grumbling, complaining, I can't... My life is not what it should be, and God has not given me what I want kind of attitude. So it's not by accident that when Paul gets to the book of Philippians, he says to do everything without grumbling and complaining, right? He's thinking of the book of Numbers as he says this, I'm I'm confident. Um, in In these verses, where do they complain? Where do they complain? In verses one through three. In his hearing. So this is a good this is a raises a question. What does in his hearing mean? <laughs> so so it could just <clears throat> be a statement of the of the um, omniscience of the omniscience of God, that he hears everything that's going on, even in your hearts. Right, that I think there's there's a, a truth to this. 
Well, what else could it mean? It didn't go unnoticed, okay? But what have we just been setting up? Right. So, so you know, you got the tabernacle and, and the people all around it. So now that God has set up this, this camp where he is actually dwelling with his people, um, and they are, the whole point of the tabernacle is that people can come to the tabernacle with their prayers, with their requests, and they can actually offer their prayers to God, and he would hear them. So I don't, I don't really come down one way or the other because I don't think the text is really clear, but I think it also could be a formal complaint that they're taken to him in worship. Yeah, it does. And, and sometimes... This is why understanding what complaining means is is important because I do think it's a part of our Christian life to take to God all of our disappointments, our frustrations, and talk to Him about them. And that's so there has to be something more that's going on here. And you'll see that as we go through these that there's it's not. I mean, you go read through the Psalms, and how often does David say things like, "How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever?" That's kind of a complaint, but it's not the same attitude as what's going on here. And you'll see as we go through the book of Numbers, all these stories help us to understand what exactly is happening in true grumbling and complaining. Yes, Mike. Might this be, might this be a, a reflection of what they learned in Egypt? Because when they went to the gods of Egypt or, and they saw it all around them, you give something, you expect something back. Mm-hmm. And they, maybe that attitude, we've done this story, why aren't you blessing us yet? Yes, yes. Oh, and, and they're actually going to compare their current experience of religion under Yahweh to their experience of life in Egypt. So that's very true. They are looking back to what was going on in Egypt and thinking, well, God's not pulling through the way the Egyptian gods did or whatever, so... But I think it is, a, I, I think it's not just omniscience, you can think of both of them, there has to be some sort of formal declaration, I am upset at you God because you have not followed through on your promises to me. And there's that, that kind of attitude. Okay, um, they, the, the, the summary statement tells us what they complain about here. What does it tell us in these first three verses? Hardships. I have in my translation misfortunes. You know, the, life is hard. And they don't want it to be hard. And so they're complaining about the difficulties of life. Okay? Um, how does the Lord react to their complaining? He is anger. And it's interesting that it says that they consume some of the outer parts of the camp. I, I don't know if this is a geographical statement, that it was just some of the far reaches of the camp uh, outside, or if it actually has kind of a metaphorical meaning that those who are uh, n- maybe not true inwardly heart believers in, in, uh, uh, in, the, in the community uh, that their hearts are kind of on the edge. You know, we tend to think that you have the visible people of God, and maybe it's, it's the people that are kind of on the edge of that visible people of God. It 
it doesn't tell us again, but at this point, we're seeing that it's uh, God, God begins his judgment on the outer regions of the camp, and it seems like if nothing occurs, that that judgment is just going to go all the way in and consume the entire camp. And so then what happens to stop that? Right, so they then cry out, and it's a response to seeing judgment, right? Whoops, whoops, you know, <laughs> stop, God. Uh, and then Moses intercedes for them. And this is going to be a, a pattern as well. The intercession of Moses is, is going to be typical throughout this. There's going to be other intercessions. Uh, Aaron's going to intercede later on. And, and so, uh, but here, uh, there's intercession, and then the fire dies down. And they name the place Tabra, um, and we have no idea where Tabra is. So uh, we're going to go through uh, all the different places where the camp stops, and we don't know where Tabra is. And a lot of that is, uh, I think, again, helpful to us to see that they name this place, but it really is a paradigmatic or paradigm of all the future rebellion that's going to take place as they're wandering through the uh, camp through the uh, Sinai Peninsula. So, uh, God does not react, you know, he responds, I guess, in some sense. Um, Excellent question. So, in, we often say God is... The theological term is immutable, which means that he's unchanging. He's not a guy that just flies off the handle, right? Um, So, I'll try to do this quickly. This is true, but God is also relational, and he is holy in, in character, meaning perfectly good. So, um, for God to, enter, <clears throat> to take people to himself in a relationship with himself, um, if those people are acting good, God's going to have, because he is unchanging and because he is good, there's going to be like this harmony. If those people are acting bad, for God to continue to act good would mean that there would have to be a change in God for him to just be like not... So for him to be okay with bad would be like a change in who he is. So, so actually the, the unchangingness of God is that he, he consistently hates evil and he consistently loves good. So now, the fact that God has taken a bad people into covenant relationship with himself is really one of the most, um, it's like it's... It, it's like it's two things hitting at each other. It hardly makes sense. This is why later on you're going to hear Moses actually tell God, 
Well, first off, God tells Moses, I just want to get rid of them and start a new people with you, and then Moses intercedes. But there's another place where Moses is so mad at the people that God intercedes as well. The fact that he's going to stick with one people and actually continue to love them uh, can only make sense with the cross, that he does that. So um, the fact that God gets angry when there's evil, he consistently does that. It's not a, it's not a quick... Uh, reaction it's just that he's in a relational pattern and he's always good so as a good person he must hate that which is evil I don't know if I'm explaining it's there's a real tension between these two the relational character of God and the unchanging immutable uh, aspect of God we don't want to say that our behavior uh, in no way uh, affects God because it does otherwise you could never please God (laughs) And yet you can please God by faith and love and obedience. Um, At the same time, you don't want this relational aspect to be so um, all-consuming that God's happiness, his inner peace, depends upon us. You see how that, it's like trying to fit those two together is a real conundrum as we think about who God is. So, Howard, I'm just going to tell you that right now, I think God is clearly explaining to us his good character and the relationship that he has with his people, so he has to go back and forth on this. Does that, I mean, I don't know if that answers, it doesn't really answer it for me, it's just trying to help explain it uh, as best I can, because God does get angry when his people sin. Otherwise, we wouldn't need the cross, right? I mean, he is actually pouring out his anger on Christ so that he doesn't pour it out on us. Um, So... uh, He's not being flippant. He's just being consistent with his good character in a relational way. I was telling them, I will take care of you. Mm -hmm. And the people are saying, I don't believe you. Right. Unbelief. (laughs) Well, yeah, and lack of faith in God does make God angry. told them to go into the, the land. They send scouts in to get a bad report. Mm-hmm. And rather than believe God, they complained to him that there are giants in the land. Mm-hmm. He said, I'll take care of the giants. Mm-hmm. They said, I don't believe you. That's the dialogue that continues here. And I don't think it's out of his nature, but he's angry with the people for their unbelief. So, God loves his people while they're still sinners. God loves his people while they're complaining. But because, if you think that eternity, right, the eternal... um, um, we'll just say heaven. If you think heaven, the, the goal of the relationship is for God to now be okay with a complaining people, we got another thing coming. That's not the, that's not the goal we're heading for. <laughs> the goal is to have a people who are thankful, who are trusting, who are loving, who are all these things, right? And so that's the, that's the goal, 
And a lot of this in the book of Numbers, I hope you're going to understand, is you're going to identify with these people. And you're going to feel the need for your interceder, Jesus Christ, to intercede for you. But at the same time, you're going to feel the need for the Holy Spirit to actually change you in some degree so that you're not this in glory. Does that make sense? So, Because the only way you can have eternal bliss with God is if this attitude gets taken out. Yes, Lee? Correct. That, that's a good way to put it. We need to hate our complaining as much as he does and, and then feel the helplessness of getting rid of that and then cling to Christ for forgiveness for it and cling to the Spirit for ongoing change so that you actually are made a different person. I mean, that's the whole, it's the whole justification, sanctification thing. So um, God's love has to occur before the complaint. It's not like get rid of the complaining and then God will love you. But he's got to show that he's not happy with what this behavior is because he's working sanctification-wise to change them. And it's going to be an ongoing thing. And, uh, yeah, the, the numbers will actually, uh, it's helped me a lot in understanding how God disciplines his people. Um, I'm, I'm tempted to thoughts coming in my mind. Okay, well, I'll probably repeat this again when we get to it. But you know the, how the first generation dies in the wilderness, okay? And the second generation gets to go in the promised land. Can any of us honestly say that the second generation was better than the first generation? <laughs> no. And even though I do think that the Bible is, is uh, equating their dying in the wilderness with an eternal damnation, I think that's true. I can, after studying numbers and after thinking about this, I can envision some of that first generation actually hearing the judgment of pronouncement upon them that they can't go into the promised land, that that pronouncement actually works repentance in their heart, and they continue to follow God throughout their wilderness wanderings and actually teach good things to their kids so that their kids can go into the land and maybe... I don't know this, but maybe some of those, if it's true that they repented and did walk with God, even though they died in the wilderness, they will see some of them in glory. So, and uh, part of my reasoning in that is uh, Moses didn't get to go in the promised land, and I'm confident we'll see Moses in glory. So, um, anyway, but just to let you know that God is, tr- he has to fix this problem of complaining in our hearts. And I hope that we'll see as, as, uh, New Testament believers, that this is, the, this is like God's goal from the beginning. When he chose to save you, he said, okay, I'm going to get out of Gina the attitude of complaining. I'm going to make her a, a, a faith-filled, thankful person. And it won't be completed in this life, but when she sees Jesus face-to-face, it will be completed. And that's who she'll be. Because grumbling and complaining has to go. It has to go. Yeah. Does an adult or do people complain in a day? <laughs> 15 to 30? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That seems low for me. No. I, I try not to complain, but I do in my heart have a lot of problems. <laughs> um, it is a lot. It is. But I'm just. It... <laughs> Howard interacts with a lot of people during the day. <laughs> uh, 
Okay, so that's, this is our paradigm. We know that there has to be an intercessor. That's actually going to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we see all that, but this is the pattern that we're given right at the beginning. So let's keep going into this uh, larger section. So let's read verses 4 through 9. Um, oh, how about Debbie Butler read? I haven't had her read in a while. Is that all right, Deb? Hey, yeah, here come, get a microphone coming to you. The rabble with them began to crave other people, other, other food, sorry. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in, the, in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna now was na- was like I can't pre- I, I know that word but coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it in, into a cake and it tasted like something made with olive oil. When, when the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Okay, so uh, the first issue of which they're dealing with is manna. And I think uh, we have to ask ourselves, what do they mean by rabble? Um, and does anyone have a different translation than rabble? They all have that. I don't know. Mixed multitude, there you go. Um, the, uh, the, they get mixed multitude really from the Greek again, because the Greek word simply means mixed. Um, when you hear rabble or mixed multitude in the English, what do you think of among the the Israelite people at this time. How would you, what do you think the the point is of defining them? What's the meaning? Who are they referring to? Okay, so, so maybe this mixed multitude is referring to the Egyptians that came with them. That's, that's a real possibility in this text. Like, because remember, many Egyptians come up with them. It's not just true Israelites. And a lot of the commentaries take rabble as this not fully pure Israelites. Okay? Are there other ways that you might take it? Mike? Mixed in loyalty. Right. It just, it just might be the ones that in any group you have bad eggs, Right? Uh, what do we say about the bad eggs? They can spoil the whole lump of dough. Doesn't Jesus say things about the yeast, right? A little yeast spoils a whole lump of dough. So, so there's, I don't know exactly what's going on with rabble. I'm a little hesitant to say right off the bat that they're just complaining about the Egyptians. I don't think that that's, uh, although later on, they will get upset at Moses because he's married someone who wasn't of pure blood. Uh, so that could be a part of this, but I do think that there's something going on that there's the bad folk in the group, 
the bad egg, okay? And it could make us think at this point, at the beginning, oh, yeah, I'm not one of the bad folk. So, like, you know, I'm in here, and it's the bad folk here that are creating the problem, okay? Now, it'll take just a very short amount of time when you will understand that the grumbling and complaining goes to the very center of God's people. Uh, At this very beginning, you might think, oh, it's just some of the bad, you know, lumps in the clay, but in the dough, but... uh, you won't get that idea if you read all of Numbers. <laughs> the rebellion goes to the very core. It goes to Aaron. It goes to Miriam. You know, it's going to the very center, not just the rabble. So whatever we think about rabble, uh, it was only at the beginning that you could possibly think that it's just a few people on the edges. What do these people have? What actually sets up the grumbling and complaining? Yes, a strong craving. What do you think of when you hear that? I'm going to, huh? Okay, yeah, yeah, like what we think of addictions now? Addictions, lust, right? It is, I think what the New Testament talks about sensuousness it is the it is the the reliance upon feeling um that that i have to feel a certain way i have to have eaten that meal and just went that was the best meal ever or i have to have just experienced something and you feel really good about that so when I hear strong craving, it's the idea I'm not experiencing in my feelings what my mind is telling me that I really want. It's a discontentment with your experience. Okay? I'm trying to broaden this instead of just thinking about the manna itself. Think about your life. Isn't, isn't that what you complain about? Maybe the guy in front of you driving down the road is going too slow and you're complaining that they're just taking to ruining your day, right? Or maybe you're interacting, for me, I'm interacting with the person at the checkout counter and they're not friendly. And I'm like, everyone should be as friendly as I am. I like, I'm an extrovert. I like to socially interact. So they're ruining my day because they're not being this, right? Or or maybe someone you interact with is not thankful that you open the door for them or, you know, whatever. But in all these things, you have an idea of what will make life wonderful. And it's falling short of that. So you have a craving for life to be something that it's not. Okay? That's, that's what's going on here. And in this case... The specific craving that they're having, at least at the beginning, because this is this is just the initial issue. There's going to be a bunch of them throughout uh, um, the the book, and many of them don't have anything to do with food. But in this one, this craving has to do with food. And what do they want? Meat. Because what is it that God has provided for them? Manna. 
And so in their mind, they are imagining something better. And the manna has fallen short of their expectations. Now, we don't really know at this point if the falling short has to do with the manna itself or if it has to do with the fallen state of their hearts. It could be some kind of combination. Um, but, but they are not happy. And so what do they do in verse 5? Yeah, <laughs> they remember the good old days. <laughs> this is what my kids always hate for me to talk about. <laughs> Dad, the good old days were not that good. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, right. We got our food for free. We didn't have to pay for it. Uh, we were slaves. Um, so... We often remember the past better than it was. Our hearts can give us nostalgia, right? Anybody here nostalgic? You like the good old days, you know? It's, uh, yeah. Uh, huh? Yeah, right. Yeah, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, <sighs> Egypt. Wilderness, promised land. The promises that God gave to them um, of really everything being wonderful are promises for here. And all that he's promising here is to get them to there. Think about that in your own life. We in the church, this is before being a Christian. This is our life after, in this world as a Christian, this is life after death, right? So God doesn't promise to us in this life to give us life without trial. And yet we often want him to do that, right? Uh, Jesus says in John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Can't you take that and go, ah, my Christian life should be an abundant life. Well, yes, it should, but this idea of having strong cravings that are not fulfilled in the present, I think, is a part of the Christian life. Okay, it's very important to have that. Yes, yes, they were not thankful. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the manna itself for a moment. Because the text gives us a description of the manna, doesn't it? So uh, we know that the manna is something that, that had been provided by God. So it's, it's clear that this is directly from God, that he's given it to us. Um, and he is uh, expecting that to be sufficient. God is expecting it to be sufficient. And we're told certain things about the manna, right? What are we told? Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, the coriander seed, you know, little round peas that can be ground up. Um, uh, maybe having some flavor, like a cilantro or something, you know. Um, and the appearance of resin or bedellum, uh, again, we're not 100% sure of that, but it has some color to it. Uh, it, it, there's something <clears throat> nice about it. It's, it's pleasing to some degree. Um, and they have to work to prepare it. They have different ways that they can do it. <clears throat> How nutritious? This is a trick question. How nutritious is the manna? As, as much as they needed, and you want to keep adding to that? I think you're right, Mary. It's, 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 it's all they needed. But how do they feel? What do they say in, uh, what is it? Verse 6. Our what? Oh, this doesn't sound like um, Daniel who says, you know, just give us vegetables and we'll be as strong as the rest of them. It actually sounds like this, it could be just in their mind, it could be just their sinful behavior, but it, it could have something to do that the manna is not as nutritious as God could have made it. You know, he could have made it like limbus bread. Right? You guys are not Tolkien readers, you don't understand this. But when the... When the uh, the hobbits and everyone are on this, this journey. The, the elves give them this, this lembus bread, and you take one little bite, and it's enough to sustain you for a whole day. God could have done that. You know, he could have made the, the manna like, man, I feel awesome. Kind of like dr- drugs do in our world, right? Because a big crash afterwards. But God could have just said, a little bit of manna, I feel great. Let's do it, you know. Um, so there's a, there's a possibility that this lembus bread is good, but not quite as good as it could be. And it's certainly in their hearts. They don't feel as energetic and as strong as they would like to feel. <laughs> okay, but, but sufficient to, um, sufficient is clear. It's enough for them to live on. But it doesn't have to be enough for you to live on at your fullest. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> All I'm saying is that the text, they're actually saying our strength is dried up. Now, you can interpret that as simply the result of their sinfulness. And they are saying some things that are crazy. But if, they're, if they were feeling in, entirely um, energetic, I think they would have just said, we don't like the taste of this. It's not satisfying to what we want. It's not cake to us. It's just like vegetables. But I think there's something going on that they just don't feel as good as they might. Now, Mike. Yeah. I, I think of this period as a time of fasting for them. They're getting rid of all that junk food in <laughs> okay. Egypt. And they're just got the basics. Now, if one fasts now, there is that down. It's like, oh, uh-huh. I miss the meat. I miss uh-huh. whatever. And you do feel low. Okay. Caffeine. You do feel low. But after a while, you get that out of your system, and you actually have more energy. 
So it could be, it could be that it's nutritious, but it just doesn't give the quick uh, bite and they have to go through a period of fasting. That's possible. That's, that's possible. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> say, say that on the mic so that everybody can hear that. So that's really good. Well, maybe they're just not saying everything they ate in Egypt, but the, the, the things they specifically say they miss are good, healthy foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and, and just so you know, we in America, we are pretty wealthy, and so we have the ability to find good foods and eat good foods. If you look at, back throughout history, um, you know, there are people on Columbus's ship that got scurvy because they didn't have a full diet. And, I mean, there's, throughout history, the, God's people have not always had perfect diets, is all I'm going to say. <laughs> we have to live with this. And God, I think, is more than just um, a physical fast to get you a physical health. I think that God is training them to live not according, not, man does not live by but by every comes from the mouth of God, right? So I think that's more important than just the healthiness of it, okay? So, um, okay, so he wants us, and this is the sermon today, he wants us to love him more than the blessing, more than the world. And so, yes, I think there could be a temporal pulling back of the blessing because he's training us to love him more. That's what he wants, okay? And instead of loving him more, we begin by complaining, okay? 